Well, good morning, High Point. So good to be with you this morning. Thankful to those who are here in person and those who are joining us online. Uh, just wanted to say something about the uh, women's yard sale. Please don't bring your items before those dates that are on the, uh, the screen. We've already been, we've taken in some stuff we had no room for. The point is I have no place to put your stuff. So please don't bring it in before the dates you're dropping it off. That's when they're prepared to take them and set them up. And, um, you know, even if you slip me a 20, you're not going to drop your stuff in this church, okay? <laughs> not that that's what it takes. We're just not going to do it. We can't do it. We don't have room for it. So please, please follow the rules and drop them off on the dates that they're there. Sorry, I have to sometimes say ugly things too from the pulpit. It's just, it's just part of my job. But uh, uh, secondly, I, I just uh, want to let you know I, I found out my mother passed away, and so I'd appreciate you keeping my family in your prayers, uh, uh, especially my brother and his wife who've been caretaking for her for the last several years. And uh, uh, just, uh, just pray. We listen. My mom, she was ready to go home. She knew the Lord, and I'm, and I. There's a part of me that's sad. But there's a greater part of me that rejoices in knowing where she is and uh, knowing that she has received her reward. Uh, yeah, she'll be missed, but she's whole and she's complete. And that's the beauty of dying in Christ Jesus. When you die, you don't die. You continue to live eternally in the presence of God Almighty. And I'm so thankful for that. So please keep my family in your prayers. I'm not sure when I'm heading out. It might be after the service. I've still got to iron out a few things, but uh, we're going to be heading over to Arizona for that. So keep us in prayer for traveling mercies as well. Well, two friends named Bill and Tom, they were drinking at a, at a coffee, an all-night coffee shop, and they got into this deep philosophical conversation about the differences between irritation, anger, and rage. So at about 1 a.m., Bill says to Tom, just watch and I'll show you an example of irritation. So he pulls out his cell phone, he puts it on speaker, and he dials a random number the phone rings and rings and rings until finally a sleepy voice on the other end answers. And this is when Bill said, I'd like to speak to Jones. There is no one here named Jones, said the disgruntled man as he hung up the phone. And Bill turns to his friend Tom and he says, that is a man who is irritated. An hour later at 2 a.m., Bill said, now I will show you a man who is angry. He picked up the cell phone once again, put it on speaker, he hits redial, and he lets the phone ring, and eventually the same sleepy voice answers, and Bill asks, may I please speak to Jones? There is no one here named Jones, the angry man replied, and he yelled a few more choice things before he hung up on him once again. He says, that is a man who was angry. An hour later at 3 a.m., Bill says, now I will show you an example of rage. He picks up his cell phone, he dials the same number, and when the sleepy man finally answered, Bill said this, hi, this is Jones, have there been any calls for me? <laughs> I share that with you this morning because I thought it was funny, but also because as we continue in our series from the book of John, and we read our scripture reference, John is going to share his testimony of a time when Jesus was clearly angry. Some would say that he was enraged. Personally, I believe that Jesus' behavior is a perfect example of true righteous indignation. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter two, 
And follow along as we read verses 12 through 22. If you don't have a Bible with you today, it will be up on the screen and you can follow along with us. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. The scriptures say, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your father's house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you probably noticed a difference in the tone from the scripture that we read last week to the one that we're reading this week. Last Sunday was about Jesus' tender compassion for a newlywed couple. We read about how he performed his first miracle of turning the water into wine to save this couple and their families from great social embarrassment. But in this event that John tells us about today, we see Jesus angry. We see Jesus enraged. We see him wielding a whip and using it to drive people and livestock out of the temple. And I believe that one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit prompted John to structure his gospel with these two extremes back to back is because it is important that we have a balanced view of Jesus. We need to see both his tender love, but we also need to see his powerful anger. We do need to understand that God is love, but that he is also righteous holiness. In short, we need to see that God is to be adored and yet feared. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's story, Voyager, excuse me, Voyage of the Dawn Treader from the Chronicles of Narnia. In it was a scene that illustrates this point very, very clearly. Lucy and Edmund come to a large grassy field where the green of the grass spreads out, blending into the, the blue horizon. It's all that they can see for as far as they look, except for this one small white spot that is in the distance. And Edmund and Lucy look at this intently, but they have a difficult time making out what it is. So they travel across the grass until they get close enough to the white spot to see that that white spot is actually a lamb. The lamb is white and it is pure and it is cooking of all things a fish breakfast. And in fact, the lamb gives Lucy and Edmund the most delicious breakfast that they've ever had. And after they ate the breakfast, they had this conversation, and they're talking about how to get to Aslan, this great lion who in, in Lewis's book represents God, 
and how to find the land of Aslan in his book, which represents heaven. And while the lamb begins to explain the way, a marvelous thing happens. And this is what Lewis writes. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Here's a great truth that's a part of Lewis's story and one that we must always remember. The lamb is a lion. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the lamb-like qualities of gentleness and, and innocence that are indeed found in Christ Jesus, you will also find the qualities of, of majesty and the ferocity of a lion. So never forget this. God is to be, re, to be feared, he is to be respected, and he is to be revered. You'll notice in verse 12, the beginning of this whole scripture reference, it begins with the words, after this. This is John's way of indicating that the testimony that he is about to share is not found in the other gospels. Remember, the synoptics had been written decades earlier, so John was sort of playing cleanup here by including things that Jesus did and said, uh, details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't necessarily share in their own gospel accounts. And as always, I like to try to give you a little bit of a proper context uh, of, of what's going on here. So I want you to notice that John says that, that Jesus, this is kind of a geographical context, the first little part here. Uh, John says that Jesus went down to Cana from Capernaum and then up to Jerusalem. He went down because Capernaum was at a lower elevation than Cana, and then he went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem had a higher elevation than Capernaum. In fact, Galilee is below sea level, while Jerusalem is, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So this small detail shows us in John's gospel was written by a Galilean, somebody who was familiar with this region. Capernaum was an important town. And it was located in the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And though I have never been there, I have read that there are two impressive ruins located in Capernaum. First of all, there you will find the ruins of Peter's house. Today, a church with a glass floor has been built over that site so you can look down and you can see it. There is evidence in the ruins of this church that Peter's house was used for a meeting place for Christians from the very beginning. His home became one of the first church buildings. And also in Capernaum, you will find the ruins of a synagogue, one that probably dates back to 200 AD or earlier, and which most certainly was built over the site of the same synagogue in which Jesus taught. And it is an impressive structure of white limestone, and it faces south towards Jerusalem, which was traditional for synagogues. Well, John tells us that Jesus stayed in Capernaum for a few days. Most commentators say that he did this because he was trying to decide if it might be a suitable place for his headquarters, his base of operations for his ministry, so to speak. Remember, he couldn't use Nazareth because he had been rejected there when he, he made the claim to be the Messiah by reading from the prophet Isaiah. 
Well, we're told that after a brief stay that Jesus left Capernaum and went up to Jerusalem. And the reason that he went there was to observe Passover, which is held around the middle of April. Now, John's timing here seems to be different from the other gospel writers in that the other, in the other three gospels, Jesus is depicted as going to Jerusalem only once, while John has him there as many as four times. Also in John 5.1, John 6.4, and John 11.55. In his testimony, John also shows Jesus doing a great deal of ministry in and around that city. But please don't think that the gospel writers are contradicting one another because they're not. In fact, when you read their accounts together, they, they in fact complement each other, give us a fuller picture of Jesus' ministry. Remember, they are each telling the same story from a different point of view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke concentrate on Jesus' ministry in Galilee while John is focusing on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. And whereas the other three writers only tell of one visit to Jerusalem, they do infer that Jesus was there more often than that. For example, during his last visit, Matthew tells us of Jesus mourning over Jerusalem when he said this in Matthew 23, 37. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen does her chicks? Jesus would have never said how often unless he had made repeated appeals to Jerusalem. So the gospel writers do not conflict here. Put together, it gives us a much more complete picture, which is why I believe God inspired him to do it this way. Another important note here is that the temple that is mentioned in our text this morning was not the first temple that was built by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, nor was it the second temple that had been rebuilt by the, by the Jews that returned from Babylonian captivity that we see in Ezra chapter 6. This is the third temple, and we've talked about this before, but it is known as Herod's temple. Which at, um, at, which at this point had been under construction for a total of 46 years. Herod had started construction in 19 BC, which means the events in our text that we're reading today occurred in 27 AD. And a thousand priests were trained to serve as masons and carpenters on Herod's temple. And 10,000 workmen were used to, to build and construct that place. It took 18 months to complete the temple proper, but eight more years to complete the outer courts. So at the time of this incident, it was still not finished. In fact, it would not be completed until 64 AD, just six years before its destruction by Rome in 70 AD. By the way, large stones from Herod's temple can still be seen in structures throughout Jerusalem today. But in Jesus' day, this massive structure was intact, and it was the pride of every Jewish heart. They say that when you approach the temple from the east, over the Mount of Olives, especially in the morning, it looked like a sea of white because it was a white marbled structure overlaid with gold plates on the east and it made it look like it was emblazoned in, in fire. The historian Josephus compared it to a snow-covered mountain. 
The temple area was composed of several walled-in courts on the outskirts of the property. You would find the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court of Israel, the court of the priests, and last of all, the porch, the holy place, the holy of holies, the place, that place was the temple proper. You may remember that that particular area, the Holy of Holies, was separated from the rest by a heavy curtain. It was where God dwelt in mercy with his people. And only the high priest could go in there. And this only happened once a year on the Day of Atonement. Most of Jesus' temple ministry actually took place in those outer courts, and specifically in the court of the Gentiles. And each door beyond that area, they say had slabs of stone that bared a warning that Gentiles were forbidden to go any further than that location. Archaeologists have dug up one of these stone slabs, and today it is on display in a museum in Istanbul, and this is what it reads. No foreigner may enter within the balustrade and enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. And you may remember that Paul was charged with breaking this particular law in the book of Acts, chapter 21. Something else you need to know is about this Passover feast. It was huge. It was the greatest of all Jewish feasts. In fact, there was a law that every Jew, every male Jew who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to attend, and we see here that Jesus was in fact obeying this law. And by this time, Jews were scattered all over the world, but every Jew no matter where they lived on the face of the, the planet Earth, they dreamed that they would be able to attend the Passover in Jerusalem at least one time in their life. And this dream brought as many as two and a quarter million Jews into Jerusalem every single year. Also understand that these, these Jewish pilgrims were a potentially huge income source. So in verse 14, it tells us that Jesus arrived into the, the temple and he entered the outer court and what he found were the priests tapping in to that source of great income. He found men selling cattle and, and sheep and doves while others were sitting at tables and they were exchanging money. Let me explain to you what was going on there. First, let's talk about the money exchangers. They were there because every Jew over the age of 19 years had to pay a temple tax to cover the sacrifice expenses. The tax was a lot of money. It was equivalent to two full days wages for these young men, or any man for that matter, over 19. And you couldn't pay this tax with just any kind of currency. You have to remember again, Jews are coming in from all over the world and they brought the currency of their homeland with them. But the temple would not accept money that had graven images of men on the coin because these coins to them were considered idolatrous. They were considered unclean. Therefore, the need for the exchange of money. But the temple didn't provide this as a service. They offered it so that they could make more money. You see, the exchange rate literally doubled the cost of the tax. 
So to go to the temple during Passover literally cost a man and his family four days' wages, and everyone was poor. But this wasn't the only cost that one would have to factor in when calculating the price of your trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilgrims were also required to offer an animal sacrifice for their sin. And the temple was more than happy to provide oxen and sheep and dove for that very purpose. And this was a necessary convenience because if you traveled all the way, let's say like from Spain, who would want to lug along oxen and sheep with them for the ride? So it was a good thing that the temple provided these animals. But the problem was that the religious leaders weren't doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They were doing this to fill their wallets with even more money. They priced the animals inside the temple much higher than you would ever have to pay outside of the temple. Plus, the animals that were brought in by the Jews who lived near Jerusalem, who would actually bring their offering with them, were usually found unacceptable by the temple inspectors. Chuck Swindoll wrote this, adding to the corruption was the way sacrifices were approved. A fee was charged to inspect all the animals brought to the temple for sacrifice. Most of the time, the inspectors found the animal blemished in some way, disqualifying it as a legitimate offering. This forced the out-of-town traveler to purchase an approved animal at the temple for often 10 to 20 times the fair market value. No wonder Christ was enraged. So what they were doing was just plain wrong. I mean, you'd expect this kind of crookedness out there in the world, but it is not something that you would expect that would be going on in God's temple. So every Passover, the people were being blackmailed. And this enraged Christ. Pilgrims who attended the Passover could barely afford this trip in the first place. And now when they finally arrived, they're being fleeced in God's house. What had begun as a service had turned into some kind of a racket. By the way, the former high priest Annas and his sons were the ones who were in charge of this, setting it all up. And these stalls and these money-changing stations became known as the bazaars of Annas. And please understand something. The wealth that was created from all of these things I'm telling you about was monumental. When the Roman general Crassus captured Jerusalem and raided the temple treasury in 54 BC, he took from it, get this, our equivalent of approximately $10 million without coming near to exhausting all the money that they found in there. So you can clearly see that due to these abuses, the people had come to despise worship in the temple. Plus, as we all learn throughout life, like attracts like, doesn't it? And so this is a place where corrupt people in the name of worship would gather together in the temple to plan their corrupt ideas. It just fed and things grew and it it just was out of control. Well, when Jesus entered the outer courts, the sights and the sounds and the smells must have almost been overwhelming to him. It was more like a livestock auction than it was a place of worship. And instead of the court of the Gentiles being a place 
where the nation of Israel was a blessing to all people, it became a disgrace. The the house of God intended to be a missionary literally became a mercenary. And the more Jesus saw and smelled and heard, the angrier he got. For 30 years, when he grew up from a boy to the age that he is now, he had been in the temple and he had watched these men pollute the house of God. And he was furious at their disrespect and their greed. He was disgusted that the floor was carpeted with manure and the smell of urine burnt his nostrils because this was his father's house. So as his first act as Messiah, he made a whip and he literally used it to clean house, his house. And I have to say that this is a great image to use when disputing all of the anemic and almost effeminate images of Jesus that we've seen. You see, I believe that Jesus was a strong man. You don't work in a carpenter shop for 30 years of your life using hand tools and not develop some muscles. I think Jesus was strong. I think Jesus was powerfully built. And so when he placed that whip into his hand, I believe that people saw that and they moved as fast as their feet could carry them to get out of his way. You have to remember, these are the lips, the same lips that spoke creation into existence. And if you and I were there, and if we had heard him speak, and we had seen the look in his eyes, I can guarantee you, swinging that whip, we would have run too. St. Jerome said that he believed Jesus was so angry, he didn't even need a whip. He wrote this, a certain fiery and starry light shone from his eyes, and the majesty of the Godhead gleamed in his face. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, the cleansing of the temple becomes a problem for some people. I say this because John has it at the very beginning of his gospel account, while the others have it at the end, immediately prior to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And I believe that the answer to this dilemma, if you want to call it that, is that there was more than one cleansing required at the temple. I mean, think about it. After Jesus cleansed that temple and he was no longer around, those people would have come right back in, set up their business, set up their tables, and it would have been business as usual because that that was condoned by the religious leaders of the day. So everything would have continued. So I believe there is a good reason that the temple needed a cleansing again at the end of Jesus' ministry and maybe even between that. We don't know for sure. So with all of this in mind, what I want to do with the time that we have left is to try for us to better understand our Lord's anger. Why all this righteous indignation in the temple on that day? What does it tell us? What message does it convey to you and I here in the 21st century? Well, I first believe that Jesus became angry because worship was being obstructed. Remember, Passover was to be a special time of worship, a time to remember the miraculous way in which God delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. But as I said, the Jews of that day changed this time and place of worship into some kind of an annual auction, 
a fundraising event, if you will. It became a, a noisy marketplace where crooked money changers took people's money from them in unashamed ways. And most of all, most sad of all, was everything was done in the name of the Lord. In short, there was no reverence. There was no regarding who God was or what he had done. In fact, worship was impossible, especially for Gentiles. You see, this court that Annas and his cronies had had commandeered was the only place that Gentiles could go to worship and to pray. Had a Gentile entered here for prayer, the scene would have driven them from and not towards the one true God. This is why Jesus was so angry. He said this in Mark eleven seventeen: My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The late Grady Nutt was a Baptist pastor and a humorist, but he was also someone who appeared on the TV show Hee Haw. I don't know if any of you remember that show. He wrote a version of this story, and it's told from the perspective of a fictitious disciple named Norton, and I want to share it with you. He writes, I never cease to be amazed at the intensity of Jesus' emotions. He was simultaneously the most gentle and awesome person I've ever known. He could hold a blossom to his nostrils as a mother might kiss the forehead of her child at bath time, but he could also scowl the fear of God into a statue. I was always curious about his anger, usually so controlled, disciplined, but no time stands out like my first trip with him to the temple. We'd been to Capernaum for a visit with his family after going to a wedding in Cana where he astonished everyone by turning water into wine. Strangely, he never seemed to want to talk about it with anyone. We arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he headed straight for the temple. Today, there was an unusual quiet about him. As we walked through the bustling streets, teeming with crowds, readying for the great festival, he was like the center of a storm, steady, eyes straight ahead, introspective. The the moment we entered the temple was the moment of pain and shock for him. I am certain of that. I say this because when we entered and found ourselves in the court of the Gentiles, there were tables set up for changing out of Jerusalem money to temple currency for an immodest fee. There were animals being sold for special sacrifices to replace animals brought by worshipers, animals which never seemed capable of passing temple inspection. There were arguments, smells, noise, a marketplace atmosphere, all in a place meant for worship. I saw Jesus stop. I felt him stiffen. I sensed his smoldering anger. In the midst of all of this, Jesus' attention was drawn to a young Gentile couple kneeling near the wall that separated Gentiles from the outer courts, inner courts, that were provided for the exclusive use of the Jews who came for worship. These two were huddled together, trying to make contact with the God of the Jews, and Jesus looked with tenderness and affection on their bent, humble forms. But about this same time, 
a hot-headed man from Upper Galilee and an official animal inspector got into a loud, vulgar argument over the alleged imperfection of a pair of pigeons he brought for sacrifice. Pushing and shoving ensued, and the visitor from Galilee was knocked to the ground right across the ankles of the young Gentile woman praying at the wall. Then a donkey wheeled and knocked over a water jar where they were kneeling, soaking the two Gentile seekers. Well, in the swirling dust and noise, Jesus suddenly came to life, furiously. He dashed over to the fighting men, now screaming and yelling and hitting, and he pulled them apart by their collars and held them back as a fisherman might hold up two fish caught on the same line. The men were startled at his strength, at his authority, at his anger, at his look of pain. He pushed them back from the kneeling couple. The anger in his eyes flashed like sparks from an anvil. With a sudden, unexpected move, he kicked over a rickety table covered with coins and rolls of parchment. He fashioned a whip out of some cords of rope, snapped it with a loud crack over the crowd's heads, and then started unpenning perfect animals. He drove sheep, pigeons, and bull calves before him right down the temple steps. Owners dashed frantically about trying to recorral their lost flocks. Money changers shoved their coins into leather pouches, ducked past him, and darted down the streets in fear. Jesus smoldered like a cooling volcano and shouted like I've never heard him shout before or since. You have turned my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Then Jesus turned to the young couple. They were staring in shock. He breathed hard for a moment. Then he smiled his patented patient smile. They and I returned it. Then he said, why don't we all pray together? And we did. And I felt strangely like a blossom in gentle hands. I think that Grady Nutt's account of this helps us to better understand the anger that Jesus was feeling at that moment. He was upset because the quiet reverence and the awe that leads us into God's presence was totally disturbed. Actually, I think it would be better to say that it was completely violated. Worship was was obstructed, and people longing to reach out to God couldn't. Their actions all but eliminated any Gentile from praying to God in what should have been an environment that was totally conducive to quiet prayer and worship and connecting with the one true God. And as I was thinking about the environment this had created, I was reminded about us and how that individually, we either help to create or to destroy an atmosphere of worship here when we arrive to this place on Sunday mornings. Have you ever thought about what kind of of an environment your attitude and your expectations or lack of expectations create when you arrive here? When you come into this place, are you carrying an atmosphere? Are, Are you creating an environment of worship? Or are you carrying around with you obstacles that prevent you from true worship? Do you argue on the way here? Are you just sitting here this morning with your arms crossed, sending body language to your spouse that you're unhappy with them or that you're, you're, you're holding a grudge? 
Have you arrived with absolutely zero expectations of receiving something from God this morning or receiving something that he might want to tell you that is pertinent and personal to your life? God's spirit moves freely in an environment where he is wanted, where he is desired, where he is expected, and where he is needed. Most importantly, where he is invited. And so if we create an atmosphere of apathy in our own heart, or if we carry into this place anger, or if we carry into this place worries and fears and concerns about something we've got to do Monday when we arrive back into the office, can you see, can you see how this becomes an obstacle to us from true worship? And not just for yourself, but for others who are here today who need to touch God. This is another consideration that I take away from this encounter that Jesus had. How passionate he is about prayer and worship. And though we are not selling animals or we're not changing money here, we got to make sure that this place doesn't ever become something it was not intended to believe. I believe that every one of us plays a part in creating an environment. An environment, not just for worship, but an environment of, of expectation of what God has in store for me that I'm investing an hour and a half of my morning into. That's important. Please don't ever forget that. Well, Let's talk about another reason that Jesus was angry. Prophecy was being fulfilled. With his action, Jesus was claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. 400 years earlier, the prophet Malachi said this in Malachi 3, 1 through 4. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Understand the religious leaders in that temple were aware of this prophecy. And so as the zeal of God's house consumed Jesus, this is what they demanded. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove that you have authority to even come in here and do all of this? In other words, they were saying, with your angry actions, you say that you're the Messiah. Well, prove it to us. Of course, what Jesus had done if they'd have used their brains, was a sign in itself. So he didn't know them anything. In fact, these leaders should have been ashamed of their blatant greed taking place in the courts of the temple. They should have known that they themselves were in serious need of being purified. Instead of asking Jesus by what right he came and cleansed the temple, they should have confessed their sins and they should have thanked him for what he did. But no, 
Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew they were unrepentant. So his answer to them was in essence a riddle. I mean, Jesus didn't waste words on people who didn't want to hear him. I can see him pointing at his chest and saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And of course, the Jews didn't get it because they didn't want to get it. They didn't care. All they could think about was their precious temple, the source of all of their financial income. They remembered all that had went went into building that temple. They thought about the huge stones and, and, and the columns, and they laughed at Jesus' claim. But Jesus did what he said he would do. He said, destroy the temple. This flesh that houses God Almighty, and in three days, I will raise it again. And that's exactly what he did. You know, we talk a lot about when the Jews of our day will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, which is a sign of the end of the age. But according to the gospel record, it's already been done. R.C. Sproul writes this, the temple has already been rebuilt. Christ is the temple. The focus of the living presence of God in the midst of his people and the rebuilding of the temple took place on the day of his resurrection. In any case, Jesus' angry response was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was his way of saying, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. You won't need these animal sacrifices anymore because I am the Lamb of God and I have come to take away the sin of the world. But just like today, sadly, they didn't hear it. They hardened their hearts and they rejected Christ. Please don't let that be you today. Scott, will you come forward and help me to close this down today? I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. I'm thinking that probably the best question for me to ask you all this morning is simple. Is there anything going on in your life that is obstructing your personal worship? In this story, it was the selling of animals for sacrifice. It was the exchanging of of money that was going on and all the noise and the smells and the ugliness that went on within that temple. Was, printing, was preventing people from praying and from worshiping God. But what is keeping you from God? You know, we've all got stuff going on in our lives and it prevents us from praying. It prevents us from worshiping too. Maybe it's a secret sin of some kind. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's busyness. The truth is there's all kinds of things that keep us away from God. And every one of them becomes an obstacle, especially when we discover that we place a higher value on those things. We think of those things more often throughout our day and our life than we do thinking about our creator. And so just like Jesus did in the temple, we need to clean house. For some, you have kept 
You're kept away from God because you've never committed your life to Jesus. You've heard about him. You know he he exists. You know his story, but you've never committed your life to him. Maybe you don't even understand the reason that this story that John writes is so hard for us to read about and why it brought anger to Jesus. Maybe you don't have a reverence. Maybe you don't have an awe for God. Maybe he never even crosses your mind. Maybe you don't understand that being separated from God is a very bad thing. And that separation has eternal implications because if you stay separated from God, that means you will remain separated from God throughout all eternity. That means your eternity, my friend, will be in hell. You will be eternally separated from God's presence and I can't think of a more horrible place to be. I had the privilege this week of doing a memorial service for a man who attended High Point, Jimmy Younger. And at that service, I explained to the crowd how that when you die, it is not game over. No, you have a spirit and your spirit never dies. Your body may give way, it will cease to operate, but not your spirit. And so where your spirit spends eternity is based upon a decision that you make to either accept or reject Christ. And can I just say that making no decision is rejecting him? But here's the deal. If you receive Jesus Christ, when you die, your spirit will eternally be in God's presence in a place of perfect peace. The Bible tells us that for a believer in Christ Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be in God's presence. And I praise God that's where my mama is this morning. And that can happen because what of what Jesus accomplished on the cross when he defeated Satan and death and the grave and the blood that he shed. Well, it's the cleansing agent for our sin. It's the only thing that can wipe it away and wipe us clean. First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what a relationship with Jesus is all about. We become a new creation, and therefore we can live a new kind of a life. And we can both live and die knowing that our eternal future is sealed in Christ. What are you going to do with this knowledge today? Will you open your heart to God, or will you harden your heart like those foolish religious leaders did? I want to open this altar this morning to anyone who may want to come and pray. And I'm not just talking about people who might want to come up here who need salvation. I'm opening it up for people who realize that that maybe during this message that you've got some obstacles. Those obstacles can be people. Those obstacles can can be possessions. Those obstacles can be other things that, that you've put ahead of God. You spend all of your waking hours planning and, 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 and working out things so this will all get greater and you're forgetting about God. I'm talking about people who have a struggle going on in your life that only Jesus can help you with. I'm talking about people who need a physical touch, a healing in their body. I'm talking about people who are confused, who need direction. Decisions need to be made and you honestly don't know how to make the decision. Well, God will show you. I want to open up this altar today for anybody who would like to spend some time in prayer and worship to God. And I encourage you this morning, if you feel a tug on your heart to come down to this altar, don't let 
the views of other people be your distraction. Don't let anything be an obstacle to responding to what the Lord is asking you to do this morning. Your answer lies down here. We talked about that last week. There's nothing magical about the altar, but there is something powerful about you taking a step, a public step of faith and saying, I am going to go to the only one who can meet my need and fulfill this request that I have, and that is Christ Jesus. I always want to give people an opportunity to respond what they've heard and to respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. So as the Holy Spirit leads you, I would ask you to respond. So while the worship team sings, if you want to come down to this altar and pray, pray. I will also pray over you. And then when we're done, we will close this service in prayer.
All those at the altar continue to pray and they can stay here as long as they'd like. I'd like you to bow your heads in prayer with me, please. Precious Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for Christ Jesus. Thank you for his love. God, my desire for all of us is that we would have a full understanding of who you are. That you are a righteous God. You deserve our awe and our reverence. And whenever we come into this place, we need to settle our spirit. And we need to be an expectant people. We need to come in here expecting something from you. And we need to create an atmosphere within ourselves that we are here to receive. We are here to grow. We are here to be challenged. Father, if we did that, every time we came through these doors, what a difference it would make in our lives and what a difference it would make in our weeks between visiting here on Sundays. So Father, let us be an expectant people. Help us when we come here that we truly expect and desire you to do something within us to make us grow, to make us stronger, to make us bolder in our faith, to become the men and women of God that, that you not only want us to be, but that you desperately need us to be in order to win this community for Christ Jesus. So Lord, I ask your hand upon each and every one of my church family. I thank you for them. I ask you to bless them. I ask you to attend to the needs that they have brought before you today. I pray that any obstacles that they have created, man-made or otherwise, would be removed and they could focus and see you completely as the number one part of their life. They would worship you and reverence you in that light, in that respect, that you would receive their full allegiance and not a portion of their lives, but all of their lives, that they would build their life around you and not try to fit you into their life. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen and you would guide and you would direct as only you can. As we go our separate ways today, Spirit of God, I pray that you would continue to direct us on the paths that we make, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would build people up and not tear them down. I ask that we would be bright lights shining brightly in a very, very dark world that so desperately needs Christ. And as we shine, people would know that there's something different about us and it's the love of Christ that comes through and that they would ask questions and those doors would open for us to share your goodness with them. And when those doors open, we would have the courage to walk through them because you truly do give us the words to say. I ask that between now and next Sunday, you would keep us safe from sickness, from disease, from, from COVID or anything else. Pray that you would keep us safe from injury or accident until we gather together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Pray that we would walk in that boldly and let this world know that we are counted among the followers of the one and only true God. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Here today.